Amen. Uh, so we're, as Brad has said, entering into Psalm 130. Uh, this morning we've been doing the Psalm, uh, Psalms of Ascents all summer, um, from book five of the Psalms, and as the Psalm, as the summer rather, uh, draws to a close, um, we're diving into Psalm uh, 130. As I said, it's a song of ascent. Um, and judging from the content of these psalms, we understand that on some level they were used uh, to approach Jerusalem, to approach the holy city, the place of worship, and the temple uh, where people would come for Jewish feasts or um, for times of worship. But it's not only a special occasion thing that Psalm 130 is for. In the same way that Sunday morning is not simply a special occasion thing that we do, it's actually something that is intended to shape our daily lives. And that's true of Psalm 130. Um, as well. There's elements of public worship that we do week in and week out on a Sunday morning that is intended to shape our hearts, to shape our loves, and to shape the way that we function in the world, the way that we relate to God and to one another. And this psalm is meant to shape our daily lives by giving us words of confession and giving us a sense of what it looks like to live out repentance in our lives. Now, repentance may not be a word that you're used to using um, in your daily life, um, and if you're unfamiliar with repentance, the Christian conception of, of repentance is simply this. It's turning toward and returning to our faithful God when we have grieved him. When we grieve him by thinking, saying, or doing things that are counter to loving him and to loving our neighbor, uh, the ways that we live out of line with his vision for the world, returning to him again and again. And the emphasis of this psalm um, and on this sermon is is uh, only a piece of repentance, only a piece of what it means to turn away from sin and towards God. We're going to be focusing this morning on confession, um, but as one of my good friends always reminds me when we talk through our struggles, he always says repentance always looks like something. Um, but this part of confession is, is the entryway into repentance. And repentance, like I said, is returning to the God who has loved us and from whom we so often run. But here's the deal. If we're honest with ourselves, repentance is hard. Repentance is hard. It's, hard to, it's a hard thing to look our sin square in the face, to admit it, to look God in the eyes and accept His grace. And if you're here today and you're religious, you've been around Christianity, the idea of repentance may be a hard concept, and you may think of repentance as an exercise in self-condemnation. And if that's your relationship with repentance and confession, then you probably disdain it. And if you're here this morning and you would not consider yourself religious and you've not really been around the church before, the con concept of repentance may seem sort of odd and sort of masochistic. Why would you enter into your mess? and invite God into it. And my hope this morning is that this psalm can give you a sense of the beauty of repentance, of the beauty of waiting on the Lord and His goodness. One of the personal reasons why I love this psalm, Psalm 130, is because I need this psalm. Uh, when I started the Christian life, I became a Christian in, in high school, um, I, I had this very naive and unrealistic notion of what the Christian life would be like. Um, and I thought that I wouldn't really need to repent all that often. That I'd sort of get over sin quickly and uh, the things that I struggle with uh, consistently, that, um, that I, would, I would change quickly. But I've found instead, as probably many of you have as well, that I tend to change very slowly. 
And I run from God and I counter his desires in more ways than I had ever realized when I first became a Christian. And I've especially over the years found myself struggling to repent when I find myself sinning in habitual ways, in ways that I keep going back to over and over again, in ways that I continue to fail, patterns that I've seen myself struggle with over the years, and it's so easy to fall into despair when I experience that. It's incredibly hard to find words to pray through these things that you feel like you should have gotten over a long time ago. How do you find words to pray through those things? It's hard. And because it's hard, I often find myself avoiding repentance and confession altogether. I'll stay busy, I'll socialize, I'll check Facebook Marketplace to find, see if I can find any sweet deals. I'll do anything but name my sin and move towards God and repentance. And I need these words to give voice to my anguish and to bring me back into the presence of God. As you're here this morning, what are some of the sins, some of the things that are out of line with or falling short of God's good vision for the world? What are some of those sins that send you into avoidance of repentance and confession, into a place where you are in the depth of despair and thus avoidance of God? When do you find yourself avoiding repentance and God altogether, busying yourself with your work, with distraction and escape? Is it in struggling with sexual sin? and getting a rush from pornography only to find it leaving you immediately hollow? Is it in giving your body away to someone that you haven't committed your life to in self-giving love and have no intention to, and finding yourself waking up the next morning and saying, how did this happen again? Is it wrestling with body image and finding yourself turning to social media once again to try to give you affirmation and grasping for control and being like, how did I fall into this trap again? Is it in comparing your parenting or your social status to that of others and finding yourself embittered towards them? Perhaps for you, it's in shortness or harshness with your spouse or your kids or your housemate, and you walk away thinking, why did I say that? That's not who I want to be. Maybe you lose control with your, lose your cool with your coworkers and you ask, how did I become this person? The reality is that we often don't know how to even begin to turn towards God in the midst of these struggles, and so we often just avoid them. And we need Psalm 130 to give voice to our anguish and to bring us back into the presence of God. Now, some of you this morning may actually not feel even this despair and anguish because you might have just completely numbed yourself to the notion of the sins and the things that you've struggled with because you don't know how else to cope with them. And so the depth of despair may not even seem real, but if that's the case, I suspect for you also neither does God's kindness feel real. And so you also need Psalm 130 this morning. The psalmist in Psalm 130 takes us through three movements of the soul as he battles through sin and fights for repentance. And those are the movements that we're going to follow this morning as we follow the psalm. And the movements are these, the depth of despair, the hope of kindness, and the weight of rest. So first, the depth of despair. The place that I find, so often find myself in the wake of sin, and the place that the psalmist opens this psalm is in the depth of despair. Sin has thrust him into the, the depth of despair, and he says in verses 1 and 2, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. This idea of the depth is the sort of ancient image of the sea 
of being in the deep, dark, wild sea, surrounded by water so deep that light can no longer reach you. On the precipice of death, oxygen and light disappearing rapidly, overcome with a sense of profound despair. And it's from this place of despair and deep darkness in the soul that the psalmist is crying out to God to hear him, to listen to him. And what is this, this voice, or this place rather, this depth like for us? There's a couple of, of forms that I think it often takes in our lives. And the first one is, is the, the voicelessness of shame. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we often don't even know how to begin to cry out when we are despairing. We don't even know how to make it that far to the point of actually uttering words and crying out. So often we feel shame and afraid to be seen or heard in our dirtiness. And there's this voicelessness that comes with shame. We think to ourselves, no words from a dirty failure like me can ever be heard. So why should I even try? How can you approach God when you are so full of shame? Are there even words? Can you even utter the word porn or admit to God what you just thought about the lovely parent or friend that just always seems to be a little bit better than you? Or exactly what you just said to your roommate or spouse in your moment of shortness. Can you admit those things? The depth of despair for us is is oftentimes characterized by this voicelessness of shame. And in that voicelessness, we don't even make it as far as the psalmist makes it in the beginning of this psalm, of crying out from the place of despair. We get quiet and we get busy doing other things, thinking about other things. But not only, not only is the depth of despair often characterized by the voicelessness of shame for us, it is also so often characterized by the accusation of guilt. If you look at verse 3, the psalmist writes this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist recognizes that if the Holy One of Israel that if the God of gods and the Lord of lords is keeping track of our sins, making note of them, keeping account of them, seeing the psalmist and seeing us in light of them, then he will be undone. If God accuses me of what I've actually done, then I am undone, is what the psalmist is saying. I might as well call this whole Christianity thing quits if God is going to accuse me of the things that I've actually done. Do you know this feeling? This fear that if God sees what I have done, if he sees what I've thought or said about my significant other or my housemate, if he sees what I've looked at, what I've searched for, there is no hope for me. Maybe I'm not even a Christian in the first place. And this is different from the voicelessness of shame where we feel dirty and unworthy because this is about the particular guilt of the things that we have done. And the psalmist is recognizing that any accusations that God might want to make about him regarding his wrongdoing and failures would be both true and damning. And sometimes we're aware that God's accusation of guilt would be true, and if he made it, we would have no defense. And so we avoid repentance, afraid to encounter a God who has the dirt on us to lay us out on the mat and to put us down for the count. And I think it's crucial that we see that there are also other places that this voice of accusation comes from. There's legitimacy to understanding the reality that God has the right, that he is the only one and true judge and can see us aright. But the reality is that some of us also listen to voices of accusation that are outside the voice of God. 
Many of you in this room are your own worst critic, and you're like, I don't even need God's accusations. I already told myself that I'm stupid and dirty and guilty. I already told myself that I should have known better, and the last thing that I need to do is to add God's voice of accusation on top of that. And if that's you this morning, you need to see that it's not your voice alone that says you've got plenty of condemnation. Why would you even need to add God's on top of that? There's also a voice that the New Testament calls, one of the, ling- one of the labels or titles of the New Testament refers to Satan or the evil one as, is the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of God's people. I don't know if you realize this or not, but Satan actually loves for us to live in self-condemnation. Because if we live in our own economy, economy of self-condemnation, we will never move towards God. And that is exactly what Satan wants. You and I often think that our self-condemnation is somehow a sign of holiness, a sign of, of piety, a sign that we really take our religious life seriously. But, it's, but if it's not a conviction with, within God's economy, if it's a self-accusation in our own economy, then it actually keeps us far from God and far from repentance. It is not holy or good at all. I think self-condemnation is one of the greatest and most effective tools of the evil one, and it's so effective because he often accuses us in places where we are actually truly guilty. He says, you demeaned your husband or wife or housemate, don't even bother praying. You let social media define you and shape you once again, don't even think about asking for forgiveness. You looked at porn, you're probably not even a Christian, and he uses truth to convince us that condemning ourselves is the right response. And so we never move towards God, and we avoid repentance altogether. You see, in the depth of despair, in the wake of sin, the psalmist cries out to God, but we often find ourselves in the voicelessness of shame. And the psalmist names our fear that if God counts our guilt against us, we have no defense. We have to condemn ourselves before we ever even get to God, and Satan loves it. So we avoid repentance because it seems like the worst thing in the world. As a result, at least I so often distract myself from the depth of despair and don't even cry out at all. So what are we to do? Where do we go from here? What could draw us to repentance? The second movement of the soul in this psalm is the movement towards the hope of kindness. And it begins this movement of of the hope of kindness with reminding us of the ear of the Lord. Read with me again in verses 1 and 2 of, of Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist is not bound by the voicelessness of shame. He cries to the Lord and he pleads with him three times in four lines to hear him as he pleads for mercy. Because for the psalmist, despite all of his shame, despite being in the very depth of despair because of his sin, he has confidence in the ear of the Lord. Phrases like this, um, hear my voice and let your ears be attentive. I cry to the Lord or hear my plea, answer me, O God. Those kinds of phrases and alongside them, uh, phrases like God heard my voice and my plea or he answered me, those kinds of phrases are found well over 50 times in the Psalms. And that's just me sort of doing a brief like survey. Someone I'm sure has done more real research, but they are replete throughout the Psalms. The Psalms are chock full of this language. 
And part of, this, what is, part of what this means for us, beloved, is that shame may take your voice, but what it cannot do is take the willingness of God to hear us. Shame may take our voice, but it cannot take away the willingness of our God to hear us. Romans 8.26 says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we, do not, uh, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The ear of God is bent to our cries. His Holy Spirit gives us groanings and voice to our prayers, even when we don't have words or know where to begin to pray. If you but turn towards God through, though you be in the depth of despair and cry out even in the helplessness of silence, he will hear you. One of my uh, favorite U2 songs, which it's so funny, I feel like these days referencing U2, because it's like, man, U2, yeah, I remember... I listened to them a few years ago. Um, but one of my favorite U2 songs is on the Joshua Tree album, and it's called Running to Stand Still. It's a song about sin and addiction, and specifically about the heroin uh, epidemic in Dublin in the, late, in the 1980s. And I love this line, even though I don't know if my interpretation of it is correct. It's still a beautiful line that demonstrates what I'm trying to say. <laughs> the line says, Sweet the sin, bitter the taste in my mouth. I see seven towers, but I only see one way out. You've got to cry without weeping, talk without speaking, and scream without raising your voice. And he's, of course, talking about the drug epidemic and the housing projects in Dublin, but those lines give substance to what Psalm 130 is challenging us to. To pray, to cry out, even when we don't have words. To talk without speaking and scream without raising our voice because it is the only way out. And the kindness of God surprises us in his willingness to hear us even in our voicelessness. But what about our self-condemnation? What do you do with our fear that God will rightly hold our sin against us and accuse us of exactly what we have done and thought and said? Our self-condemnation and Satan's use of it tells us that we can therefore never move towards God but listen to what the psalmist says in verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist tells us that though we might expect God to accuse us and reject us and to affirm our fears of condemnation, even though you may have already written yourself off because of your sin and your shortcomings and your failures, knowing that you have looked at what you have looked at, done, and said, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who is most deeply grieved and offended by our sin, instead of making, marking our iniquities, instead of breathing the fire of condemnation upon us, that we may breathe upon ourselves, when we turn to him with empty and honest hands, he offers forgiveness. God is not like us. He is both more serious about sin than we are, but he is also far more serious about grace. He is far more gracious with you than you may be with yourself. Are you like me this morning, afraid of moving towards repentance because you are afraid that you cannot bear any more accusation and condemnation than you are already overwhelmed by? 
the psalmist reminds us that if we but move, but move towards God and repentance, there is not accusation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is forgiveness. And this is precisely why the psalmist says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The sense of fear here is a sense of reverence or awe towards God because of how unexpected it is that he, of all the characters in the story, the creator of all things, would be the one who is more willing to forgive than any other character. The psalmist knew this without knowing about Jesus who was counted as addicted and harsh and angry and inconsiderate so that we could be counted as righteous and whole and loving. The psalmist makes this proclamation not even knowing the fullness of Jesus, and we have the fullness of Jesus to look to and know that Jesus has been counted as sin on our behalf so that we could be counted as righteous and holy before God. Something that's so easy for us to also think as we think about Jesus and his death on the cross and resurrection is to think of Jesus as dying sort of for generic sin or for somebody else's sin out there. And part of what the encouragement of this psalm is and the story of the scripture is for us is that Jesus didn't just die for generic sin. He died for the particularity of sin, for the actual sin that you and I have, have committed and struggle with day in and day out. It is your sin it is the particularity of your guilt and your struggles that have been nailed to the cross so that you can be proclaimed as one who is forgiven. When we are in the depth of despair, we avoid repentance because we fear that God will accuse us with the same fervor or maybe even a greater fervor than we accuse ourselves. And Satan tells us that it ought to keep us from God. But with God... For all who turn to him in repentance, with him there is forgiveness that we may be in awe of him. And even in the voicelessness of shame, God will give ear to our groaning. And in the depth of despair, there is a hope of kindness because God, our God, is unsettlingly kind. We move towards God in repentance because of the hope of kindness. Romans says that it's God's kindness that leads us to Repentance. It's not just any kindness, but is the hope of God's kindness. So what if you believe this? What if you do move towards God in the wake of sin and cry out from the depths? One of my great frustrations in daily life is that when I do come around and I confess my sin and I repent and I ask for forgiveness, I've begun to move towards God and begun to believe in his kindness, but then I still feel that pit in the bottom of my stomach. The weight of shame and guilt is still around a little bit. It may not be at the bottom of the sea, but the fog is still heavy. And what do we do with that? Well, the psalmist continues to give us words in Psalm 130. This is the final movement of the soul, the wait for rest. He says in verses 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. The psalmist has recognized his sin and he's cried out to God and remembered that God is forgiving and yet he waits. And he gives us this image of the watchman. I don't know if you can imagine what it would be like to be a watchman in the ancient world. The city is asleep and their life depends on you waiting and watching. But as you peer out beyond the city wall, 
All you can see is darkness upon darkness. Who knows what enemy's army might lurk in the shadows, and all you can do is watch and wait. Watch and wait. And the writer says, I've cried out to God and remembered that God is forgiving, and now with all the anticipation of the watchman on the guard tower, he waits for the morning. His soul, his whole being waits. With great anticipation, he waits. And what does he wait on? He waits on the Lord and for the Lord to make good on his promise and character to fully experience forgiveness and redemption. And man, I think there's great comfort in this for us. It is such a comfort to know that it is a normative part of our experience that even after confessing and repentance, the fog still lingers. We have to grow in patience, knowing that God's word is still true, his forgiveness is still real, even though we may not feel it in the moment. But the writer has his sights set on something bigger bigger than just experiencing or feeling forgiveness in the moment. He changes voices in these last two verses and speaks directly to God's people. And he says this, O Israel, people of God, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He reminds God's people that with this God, there is an abiding, steadfast, never-failing, never-give-up love for his people, and that with him is plentiful redemption, more than enough redemption. Though sin may abound, grace abounds much more. And here's where he has his sight set on something bigger. He says in verse 8, God will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Not some of his iniquities. Not just those that weren't as bad. No, all of them. God will redeem his people from all their iniquities. This is not merely a present reality that God offers forgiveness in the here and now, but this redemption is talking about a future reality. God has in mind for his people not just forgiveness now, but full restoration in the face of all of our sins and shortcomings and failures. See, God has the sights not just on having mercy on you in the face of your harshness or shortness towards those who you care about, but God has his sights on remaking you into one who has deep kindness and patience. God has the sights not set simply on forgiving us and uh, forgiving you for using your own body and, and, and using uh, social media to sort of justify yourself and, and compare yourselves to others, but God actually has an intention of making us comfortable in our own skin and giving us the trust and rest in him for things that are beyond our control. God has the sights not simply on forgiving our, our struggles with, with sexual, uh, sexualization in our culture, not just forgiving pornography addiction, but on healing it. Not just addressing a particular sin you feel guilty about, but restoring your life to one of wholeness and worship towards him. And how does he intend to do this? In the final movement of the story, it will come in the return of Jesus. And then the here and now, his moving towards us, uh, his moving toward us through the reality of this process of repentance, of turning and returning to this God, reshapes us. See, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. When we move from the depth of despair 
into the hope of God's kindness, it actually does something to us. We're such like results-oriented people. We're like, but have I gotten there yet? And we don't realize that the very process of moving towards God is something, something is going on. God's doing something in that space. As we move from the depth of despair into the hope of kindness, it reorients us as we encounter God himself. We get to see over and over again that God's kindness is more warm and more stable and more faithful and more life-giving than our sin. It is through the movement of repentance that God changes us. Isaiah 30 verse 15 says this, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. We so often avoid repentance, unsure how to speak in our shame, afraid to face the accusations of our guilt. But this psalm beckons us to cry out from the depth, to encounter the hope of God's surprising kindness, and to wait for the rest that comes, though often slowly through through the promise of his forgiveness, and to wait for the full and final redemption that he willingly brings to his people. That image of the watchman that we just talked about Um, there's something else that strikes me about this image other than just the anguish of waiting through the night. And the other thing that strikes me about this psalm is not only that it captures the intensity, weariness, and anguish of coming out of the depth of despair and waiting to experience God's redemption, but there is something that the watchman knows. And the thing that the watchman knows that gives him hope is this, that the morning always comes, that the promises of God are sure, that no matter the depth of his fear or despair, that the morning will come regardless. And so too will the rest of God's forgiveness and the full redemption he promises to all those who wait on him. So let us wait this morning on the Lord. Let us practice repentance. And even with the words given to us in the psalm, we wait and we cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm going to pray for us before we answer some Q&A. Father, we need this psalm. We are at times a silent people. We are often a despairing people. We are people who struggle to believe that your forgiveness is not only as rich, but is richer and deeper than our failures and struggles. The mystery of the gospel is that Our failures and struggles are deeper than we have even begun to imagine them, and yet your grace is richer and deeper than them. Lord, remind us that with you there is forgiveness. And set our hopes on the certainty that the morning will come, that Jesus, you will make all things new, and that there is goodness in waiting upon you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So a couple questions uh, this morning. Um, First question, what is the purpose of corporate confession versus individual confession? Um, This is a great question, and I I really appreciate it because I think it's very easy for us, particularly in an individualistic culture, to think of individual confession as sort of the only kind of confession that we need to do. As long as me and God are praying quietly, uh, talking quietly in a corner somewhere, then that's all that we need. Um, but there's several things. <laughs> One is uh, we are a people who are intended to be woven together as the people of God. 
And we actually need to engage in the rhythms that, God's give, that God has given us together. Part of how we actually are united is collectively recognizing that we have all fallen short of God's purposes and his vision, and that God is collectively forgiving us. We are knit together, both in our confession and our receiving of God's mercy and grace. And man, that is such a beautiful uh, thing. Another thing that's true in this is that we actually can't, I don't know if you've noticed this uh, and probably thought about this in this sermon this morning, but um, we are virtually incapable of fully recognizing the depth of our sin or receiving the fullness of God's grace if it's just us processing and thinking through these things. We desperately need to be in community together, confessing and, uh, and receiving God's mercy uh, and grace. Um, and God's designed it this way. We're, we're not, this is not a sort of like a, uh, I just forgot the phrase, the, you know, how something's not, it's built into the system, it's not a broken, th- there's a phrase that I'm, yeah, it's a feature, not a, fu- a bug. Wow, that was hard. Um, thank you, Hannah. Um, it is a feature, not a bug, that we actually come together in confession um, and receiving assurance together. It's intended to be that way. The bug is us thinking of it as an individualistic endeavor. Um, we have that in reverse. We kind of think like, well, we have to do this together uh, because it's hard for us to do individually sometimes. And actually, the reverse is, is true. We, we are made most to do this together, and that informs how we function individually. Um, we're so wired in our culture to, to function individually and then to figure out how to work that out in community. And God has actually wired us to live most fully in community and for that to define how we function individually. Um, and that's true as well with confession um, and uh, forgiveness. Um, uh, okay. How do we discern whether we're feeling uh, self-condemnation versus real conviction? This is a great question. Um, and actually, I think it's a really simple one. And here's the, uh, maybe another way of even phrasing this is like, <clears throat> how do we tell the difference between, um, 2 Corinthians 7 talks about this language of there is a kind of uh, grief, um, of worldly grief that leads to death, um, and godly grief that leads to repentance and life. And so how do we know if the thing that we're feeling is just sort of self-condemnation uh, and sort of this our own economy versus um, conviction? And the difference is this. Are you willing to move towards God? That's it. Because the thing that itself that you may be struggling with could be the exact same thing. But worldly grief, which is grief that is with reference to ourselves and others, the sort of sense of like, I have disappointed myself and I've disappointed others, and so um, there's really no way out, and it's, I've disappointed God so much that I could never move towards him. That's worldly grief that leads to death. But godly grief, that is grief that says, there's something about what I have done that's, even though I've sinned against other people, that's ultimately about God and, and sinning against him, there's, that is freedom to know that it's not just sin against ourselves. <laughs> because God can do something about it. Um, he is the ultimate judge, and it is a beautiful thing to experience godly grief, where we don't just stay in our grief. It's not just a pity party. We actually are moved out of it. Um, and these psalms actually give us the language to move out of the depth of despair and into the presence and forgiveness of God. And that is such a gorgeous thing, and it's, uh, it's a weird word I feel like to use in this. I don't know. It shouldn't be, but for some reason it feels weird. But it is a beautiful thing to experience that and to know that we're not, um, <clears throat> there's a false kind of holiness that says, 
uh, that, we, that we ought to stay in this sort of languishing in our, our shame as long as possible. And God says, no, like there's replete throughout the, not only the Psalms, but also through the, uh, the prophets in the Old Testament, there's this language that says that God is, is ready and waiting for us to come to him. There's not sort of a like, all right, now I got to teach you your lesson now that you finally came. It's like, no, no, no. When we return to God in repentance, he is ready and willing to offer forgiveness. Um, and that's hard because we have to, we're so wired to live in our own economy of our heads. That's hard to get our heads around. And once again, that's part of why we need this community to remind us of God's grace and forgiveness um, together. Um, thanks for those questions. And definitely, I know that there's a lot of, uh, particularly as we talk about habitual sins and struggle and addiction, there may be a lot that comes up for some of you guys. And so if there's anything that, um, that, that landed with you in a crossway um, that would be helpful to talk about more, I'd be happy to, to field those questions. Um, or if there's just something that you need to talk about and talk about in community, I'd be happy to, Brad would be happy to, be happy to do that together. Let me pray for us uh, before we move to the Lord's table. Father, um, we're so grateful that you uh, are abounding in steadfast love, that with you, um, an adjective that we would not expect uh, is featured in this psalm, that there is plentiful redemption, that it's more than enough. And we ask, Lord, that as we move towards the table, that you would teach us um, to taste and see that your grace is abundant. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.